Hi there, and welcome to Scale. I am your host, Stuart Ritchie. I am the founder and CTO of Powered by Coffee, a web and software development agency working with media brands using open source to solve problems. Scale is a technology about how media is impacted by technology and in return how technology impacts media. Today, our guest that we're very excited to have is Brian Halvey the CTO of WordPress VIP, but with a huge storied background in the history of digital media and online media, kind of almost since since the inception. Brian, I'm going to shut up and, and let you tell us a little bit about, about yourself. Tell us how you, you got here, your own history for anyone who doesn't know you. Sure. That, that, that's very cool. Uh, you said storied history, which makes me feel good, right? That, that I've been involved <laughs> in good things. I, I, I've been lucky. I've been blessed. I mean, from from, I had a career before the web mm-hmm. and then from the web on, which is 1995 on, I've been fortunate to only work with brands you've heard of, right? That's a really good thing. A lot of people yeah. work with a lot of companies that nobody's ever heard of. And when you're at dinner with your family, a big reunion or something, you have to explain what you do. It's really easy when you say like, oh, I build this software that, that TMZ and then Gadget and Netscape and all these different things run on. They're like, oh, I've heard of those things where I built. So, so I, my career on online, the web part started in 95. And I got to, I would, I'd been working with Business Week, the magazine, not doing web stuff. They were on AOL, but they weren't on the web. And I got to go next door and build the first TV Guide website. And people like, again, people like, oh, I've heard of TV Guide, right? So, so very lucky. And that was fun. And I went back next door and said, Business Week, we need to be on, on the web. And they said, no, we don't. And then that afternoon, I got a call from somebody saying they needed to have a website. I was like, okay. So then I built theirs, right? So I, so Business Week, TV Guide, and then just a bunch of other brands you've heard of. So I, soon after that, realized you could put a database behind a website. You could build software to power a website. You didn't have to edit a website by hand. You could yeah. build tools for people to do that. And then got into building CMSs. So I built a couple dozen content management systems over the years. Again, you know, Netscape and Gadget, TMZ, all these brands you've heard of, very lucky. And then about a year and a half ago, so in, what are we in, 2023? So 2022, Sorry, the beginning of that year, joined, <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. Joined the, the the WordPress company automatic, right? I joined their enterprise division, which is called WordPress VIP. So I'm helping run this platform that, again, some of the largest brands on earth run on the, the, either the White House's website or NBC and Al Jazeera and all these big, giant, cool media companies, Nexstar, all these things. So very big global brands that have a lot of traffic that are at the biggest media companies or content marketers in the world. So that, that's what I do, CTO of that. Thanks. Awesome. And then just for anyone who's kind of like, maybe has like heard of WordPress VIP. I mean, obviously almost everyone listening will have heard of WordPress, but what is WordPress VIP? Yeah, so so that's, very, that's a very good question because WordPress, of course, is the most popular content management system ever. It turns mm-hmm. 20 this year or just turned 20. So that's, a, that's an incredible feat, right? Having built a couple dozen like dedicated CMSs for very specific brands, very specific businesses, very specific audiences, platforms, things like that, it's very hard to build something that works for everyone. Mm-hmm. And WordPress did a very good job of that because of the plugin architecture, because it was open source. So they really built something that 43% of the web runs on. That's half the web. They could yeah. probably power the other half. So that, that's amazing. But, but that's, that's something for everybody. And, and I, like to, I like to say that sort of the rest of the company, we're in the enterprise part. So for bigger companies, bigger brands, high traffic, high volume, high volume of content, big editorial teams, right? These are the kinds of things we work with. The rest of them, build all the other stuff. So the WordPress that you download and you could build a, a six page dentist website on, well, that's 
that that's what WordPress does. That's great. Well, we do the the part of it that's really for the biggest businesses. So if you have a, a very large amount of content, if you have, or, or it's a very important website. Actually, I, I love the name of your podcast, Scale, because <laughs> I, 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 the way I explain VIP to people is you build it. So you build your WordPress website. You build it, we scale it. So yeah. you bring us your craziest WordPress thing that's that's got the most tables or the most multi-sites or the most something, and you're having trouble scaling it yourself on Amazon or at some other company that has millions of customers. We have roughly a thousand customers, but they're all giant brands you've heard of doing really hard, really important things. Yeah. So that, that's what WordPress VIP is. We are here to solve the enterprise things and to show you that WordPress actually can scale at the level of these giant companies that I mentioned. Awesome. It's one of the things we kind of come up against is like, oh, WordPress can't scale, WordPress can't scale this and can't scale that. And I'm like, the some of the very biggest sites in the world are running or running WordPress. And it's a bit of a like message to people. And you'd be like, X, Y, and Z media round has like 20 brands and 20 sites within those brands. And they're all running on probably one huge multi-site instance. And they're doing more traffic in a day than your app that you're worried about scaling has done in its entire existence. But anyway, we're not here to talk about WordPress or particularly WordPress VIP. Your own background haven't been worked with so many media brands over time. You have been through a lot and we have seen, and one of the things we talked about before was how do media brands start to grow and how do they iterate? And one of the things you brought up that I thought was really interesting was approaching them more like startups, like having a quick iteration cycle as they're small, like just doing something and seeing seeing what sticks. So I would love to like dive in, dive into that a bit more. Now, I, so it, it's funny because on podcasts, you, you, they're, they're always like a trip back in time. Yeah. So, so, so we're not gonna talk about like today, the thing, thing, things as they are, where things are kind of at scale, but how do you get to scale? Yeah. And it always, it always starts with from nothing, right? From zero to one before you get to 60, right? Like yeah. you have, you have a long way to go. And when I was building startups, creating companies, I just, I, I didn't know a lot of the terms. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I didn't know that we were making a startup. I knew we were creating a company. I knew we were creating a business, but I didn't know those terms. I didn't know the rules. I was very, again, very lucky to have famous investors without really knowing what valuations were and what all, all the stuff that the world has learned from the social network movie or from Shark Tank or from sure. any of these things that kind of explain our, the sport that I'm in. Startups is my sport, right? Yeah. And and all, throughout a lot of that, it's been media related, so publishing. So and and so so back to the how I got into the web. I was working with media brands, right? In a TV Guide, Business Week, things like that. We were, I was in one building next to another building, and Time Life was the one after that. So all these brands were on the same stretch of blocks in New York City, and people would just jump jobs between all of them, right? And so I had publishing in my blood. I had you know, print publishing, magazine art. I was a magazine art director for a while. I did a lot of desktop support. So, so I've always approached things as at, in publishing and in media companies. So anyway, when you start one of those, you are very much like a startup. You, you are, you know, struggling to get from zero to one. You're struggling to get your first customer, then your 10th customer, then on your way to a thousand or millions of customers. And so the, the rules are all the same that they are if you're trying to launch uh, uh, an app like Uber or Yelp or something like that. Or a magazine, or a, or a small, or some kind of brand, a local news brand. Yep. So it's it's all the same rules, and you are. I'll, I'll actually tell you an interesting thing. So so I, I co-created this website and gadget. It's like a long time ago now, 20, yep. 20 almost twenty years ago. 
And the person who started it was Peter Rojas. He was a journalist and he had created a site called Gizmodo. So he actually basically invented gadget blogging, which was a very big thing for a long time. And you look at what those brands are now, Gizmodo and Engadget, and they're still around 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And like they're, they're, they're huge and they have large teams and they're very important, right? They make a lot of money, a lot of advertising revenue. But back when Peter was working on Gizmodo, he worked, I think he worked on Gizmodo for about a year and a half before we stole him away to create Engadget with him. And my, my part in that was I built the software that it all ran on. So I was always building these, these platforms or oftentimes I came up with the names and the, and the designs right. for a lot of our websites, all these other things, but not that one that he, he came up with the name and his future wife came up with the logo and all this stuff, which they still have yeah, the, cool. the, the Engadget logo. So, so, but, but they started, we started with nothing, right? And it literally, Gizmodo was a one person team. It was just Peter. So he wrote a bunch of blog posts every day for 18 months and his deal wasn't very good. He didn't own Gizmodo. He was just working on it and he had created something very valuable and he wasn't going to get anything for it. So we stole him away. He created Engadget and it was very funny because on day one of Engadget, we didn't have any traffic. Nobody came to the website. Like every one of these massive, massive brands was a nobody on day one and had to figure out ways to get attention, figure out ways to grow and get from zero to something. And I, one of the more interesting stats was it took us, it took it. So, so when Peter left his, his old website had a lot of momentum, had a lot of traffic. And even if they never posted again, his moto would be a giant brand. Like it had a lot of traffic, but then, then they, they stacked it up with more than one person. So now you have Peter on gadget as a one person blogger trying to compete with his old blog, all his SEO stuff that he'd done there, all that momentum. Yeah. And now they have a two or three person team. So now he's starting from, from zero. We didn't have any money, right? We couldn't yeah. fund this thing and hire a 12 person team. And so he, it, it took him a year to catch up to his old brand's traffic. But in that year, you're doing everything you can to figure out ways to get attention, to figure out ways to get ahead. And so I, I think the only way that you survive those things and, and keep your sanity is to set goals. In a year, I would like to be this big. What are the steps that it will take to get there? Great. And if you beat those goals, you, you make new goals, right? Yeah. If you then sell the thing for a lot of money, you still have to figure out ways to motivate yourself and get to the next level. But the rules for growing a media brand, the rules for growing a startup, any kind of business are basically the same. It's how do you get from zero to one? And then once you do get to, to there, how do you keep motivating yourself to go to two, to five, to 60? Absolutely. So then it, it sounds very much like to kind of come back to like the startup thing, there's two words I feel like they're thrown around a lot, kind of like the minimum viable product. Like what is your minimum viable media brand? And spoiler, that's not really a technology problem. It feels like that's a content problem of like, I'm making the right things to talk to the right audience and finding the right schedules for that. But then also the other one is more your product market fit of like product is the content. Is that fitting with what people are trying to to get to? Is that kind of where you're kind of coming to this for. Yeah, no, th- so those rules definitely apply. And and thinking back again, as you get to do on a podcast and looking mm-hmm. back at yours, looking back in time, right? The little, little time travel thing we're doing right now. Yeah, product market fit is interesting because it's it's so poorly defined or sure. it's so impossible to define. Yep. And what people basically say is, y- you'll know it when you feel it, right? And the feeling of product market fit is that you're no longer having to go and push your thing onto people. Put You're no longer, you know, ring their doorbell, try to get their attention. Like they're coming to you. And it's funny because in, if, if you don't, if you don't 
if your business doesn't sell something at some point, then it's just a hobby. It's not actually a business, right? So at some point you have to sell. And in the media business, you need to sell advertising, you need to sell sponsorship, you need events, whatever it is you're doing. And the way that the, the best kind of sales is order taking. It's where people are running towards you and throwing money at you. And you're just writing down, great, I'll slot you in for this many ads for this quarter or whatever. The hard part is when nobody cares about you and you're trying to beg them just to, okay, I'll discount it. Okay, please, please, I'll give you pay for one month. I'll give you three, right? Yeah. That's a bad position to be in, but that's where everybody starts, right? You're a nobody and nobody cares about you until you're a somebody and everybody's throwing money at you. So so we went through that with Engadget. I remember how at some point it got to a point where it felt like, oh, we were doing more, more order taking and the world was like, for two years, the world was like, oh, we don't care about blogs. And all of a sudden, uh, AOL was like, we really care about blogs. Can we buy your company? And then advertisers were like, we need to take Ford, the car company. It was like, we have $10 million to spend on advertising, but we want to put two of it on blogs. And I'm like, okay. And so things got easier when you, when you got to a certain point, but getting there is a lot of work. Absolutely. I wonder how much then hindsight and these things plays in. Because I think you said, I've forgotten Jen's team that started Gizmodo. So he was there for about 18 months. Yeah, and then Peter Peter Rojas. He was a Peter great, Rojas. he's still he's a super smart guy. Now he's an investor. He's a yeah. super smart journalist. Well, he was definitely ahead of ahead of the trend on that one, very much so. So I mean, like when Peter Rojas was starting Gizmodo, it took him 18 months, two years to kind of get it to the point where he's pulling him over. And he managed to take that knowledge that he had applied and built it up so that Engadget could walk where Gizmodo had run and kind of caught up within a year to the SEO thing. So there's a certain mm -hmm. amount of then like, I'm learning this, I'm learning this. It's never just like, I'm done. I've picked up information here that is going to like help me get to that snowball to like build out that next, that next piece. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a learning thing. And, mm -hmm. and, and there's, it, it, well, it's a funny thing too, because we, we built that company and then we sold it in like two years. It was really quick. We had only had one yeah. investor, Mark Cuban. So back to Shark Tank, right? It was, it was yeah. way before Shark Tank, but we, 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 we were small and then we got acquired. It was cool. So the, but right after we did that, I had famous web design friends who were like, oh, I'm going to make a blog network now because that was what I did to make a bunch of money. And so they wanted to do the same thing. But, but even two, three, four years later, all the rules about SEO, all the rules about having a network of sites all linking to each other and all the, the, the cool things that we happened to do, we were there before AdSense existed, sure. Google AdSense. And, and by the time two years later, we were actually, so when Google went public, they had to do their S1 filing where they explained to the world, hey, we're a search engine company. We're really small right now, but we think we're building something big and we don't make any money, but we do have this cute little thing called AdSense and we think it's going to be big, right? Of course, it's a joke looking back. It's gigantic. It, the, whole, the, whole world, the, the whole world runs on it, how the web makes money. But at the time, they only had sort of two examples of people using AdSense that were worth anything. And I forget the other one, but one was me and Jason. It was our blog yeah. company, right? And so we were in Google's S1 filing and it said, yeah, these two, these two dopes from Brooklyn have built this network of websites and they put our code on their websites and we show ads and they're actually on track in, in, in one year to make a million dollars on, to make, to make a million dollars a year on AdSense. And then they can afford to pay their employees and take salaries themselves. So they're building a business based on this cool software we have. So we were fortunate to be part of that, but, but all those rules for what we did in those two years, two years later, they didn't matter. A lot of the people who worked with us on that blog company went off to start new things. They tried to start in Gadget 2.0, or they tried to start Autoblog 2.0, or whatever the next thing was. Or 
I had friends that would just be sitting with me and straight faced over dinner, they would say, I'm building a, a blog network, but it's all about pets. There'll be cat blogs and dog blogs and all this other stuff. And I'm just looking at them like, this is a horrible idea. It's going to go nowhere. It's what worked for me. Is not going to work for you? There's a book, what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. And in just two or, th- in two or three years, all the rules change. So you think of that transition of creating Gizmodo and then creating a gadget. We were lucky that it happened in sort of like a one-year, two-year window, but you wait five years and all the rules have changed. So everything you've learned goes out the window. You're constantly learning. And I like to think that that everybody's a beginner at some point. So all these companies we're talking about who are starting a media brand, starting from zero, starting something small, one, they have a year or two where they get to be completely unfamous. Nobody knows them. So they can change a lot. I mean, there are a lot of stories that the original TMZ was not the TMZ that it is today. They got to do a lot of stuff before they were famous and change a lot and iterate to get to the thing that finally did get product market fit, that did resonate with the whole planet, that did break news that they were the number one site on earth that day. But, and I also think about at one point we were taking publishing tools to brands a few years ago and six or eight years ago, all brands wanted to be publishers, right? So if you're Pepsi, you're not a soda company, you're a publisher because Red Bull's a publisher. They're a media, everybody's a media company, right? IBM, McDonald's, they're all media companies, right? Harvard is a media company. Sure, right, whatever. I mean, they do have a book, but but everybody's doing that. And if if you're doing that, you could be a hundred year old company like IBM and you're a, you're a zero year old publisher. You're a zero year old media company. So everybody's a beginner at some point. Some people get to do it with a lot of money in the bank and tens of thousands of employees. And some people do it with nobody sitting around at home on a laptop and start from zero. So it's, yeah. a, it's a, back to the startup thing. The startup rules apply to all of this. Absolutely. So, I mean, let's look at that then. So if you were, if you were starting today, new media brand, or you're already a small media brand, so you've got like some level of traction, you're getting that thousand page views a month, say, what would, how do you think those people move the needle today in a world where we're looking more and more at increasing distrust of what people are reading online, the social platforms that we're used to build, the kind of intermediary media brands, so your Buzzfeeds and your Vices and things like that, those networks kind of slowly shutting down. What's, what are good things you think for aspiring brand owners to be looking at today to try and start getting that little bit of traction? What do you think are so that's a very broad question, I'm afraid. No, no, it, no, it, it is, but, it, but it's a fair one, right? Like the, what, what, the, what the market looked like when BuzzFeed launched 10 years ago or whatever it was is completely different than it is today, right? Yeah. And sometimes you have a window to do a certain, a certain kind of thing. So you have a three, four, five-year window. And then past that, it, nobody may care about the thing that you're doing, right? That, that, that you, and the plan that you start with. They talk about this too, that no, no business plan survives first contact with customer, right? Yeah. Everybody has a plan, right? You go, you go and you, you, you meet a customer and then it all changes. So, so you can have plans. Those don't matter. I, I actually tell you, thinking before about talking about these brands, you talk about MVP. You asked me about that before and I didn't yeah. answer. So, so MVP is an interesting concept just because it means minimum viable product, get something out the door. And I can tell you that if you launch something, if you actually get something out the door and get an audience and get feedback from them. You've now beat 99% of the people who sit around saying, I have the perfect idea for a brand. It's got the best name. It's going to look like this. And it's got this very retro feel. It's very edgy. And the content is like, and you, you, you have this thing in your brain that you're describing. There's a really good book by Rick Rubin, who produces, who produced like the Beastie Boys albums. And he's worked with a bunch of different like 
rap yeah. stars, metal stars, just and, and it's all about creativity. And he talks a lot about just get the thing out the door. Take take the thing in the moment. Don't spend 10 years working on your album. Spend one, spend six months, just get it out the door. And he makes a really good case that when you're being creative, one, you have to, if, if you don't get this thing you're working on out, then you don't have room for the universe to give you that next thing, right? Like until you have this baby, you can't make another baby. It literally is like, you can't do it. So get the thing out the door. So I look at this, this sort of MVP thing. And I think if you ship something at all, you're now better than 99% of the people who sit around a coffee shop talking about the amazing idea they have, and they're never going to ship it. So that's step one. Yeah. Then once you get it out there, you have to iterate, you have to get the feedback, you have to make it better and grow. But it's, it's, it's again, like all the rules go back to startup rules and growing a business and, and learning. So then you think of, okay, how would I build a, you asked, how do I build a media brand? So how would I build a blog network today? Well, first off, you wouldn't build a blog network. Some people think, oh, the new version of that is a whole bunch of Twitter accounts or the Gary Vaynerchuk's company, Gallery Media. They have a bunch of Instagram sites, right? So they kind of have a modern magazine network the same way that Condé Nast or Hearst or Penske, which owns Rolling Stone and all these other things and runs on WordPress PIP, all these great titles, variety and stuff. Those magazine, those magazine companies with 30, 40 brands were what we built, what we based our blog company on. We'll have a brand on that. We'll have one site that talks about cars, one that talks about gadgets, one that talks about parenting and babies and stuff, one on luxury things. So all of those things today, if you're, if you're gallery media, you think, oh, I just have to go to Instagram and get like Instagram.com slash drinks, Instagram.com slash cars. And they have all those things. So they basically have this yeah. really interesting magazine network that has no magazines and has a very small team doing things and they run an interesting business. So is that what you do? Or if you're building on someone else's platform, is that a terrible idea, right? The, the good thing about building on someone else's platform, hitching yourself to Facebook or to Twitter when it was young or whatever, or TikTok, is you get a lot of exposure, right? YouTube, you get a lot of exposure. But the bad thing is they can change the rules and everything goes away. So I think there's a case for building something on your own. But the rules for how you get attention today are not the same as they were three years ago and certainly not what they were 20 years ago. It's, it just, you just have to be really, really good at today's rules. And that's, that's a skill, like constantly adapting. How do you keep yeah. something going for 20 years like WordPress or 20 years like Engadget is yeah. it's pretty magical because a lot of these things don't survive. You Absolutely. talk about Vice and BuzzFeed and all their challenges. They're only 10, 10 years old or whatever they are and yeah. they're, they're struggling. Oh, cool. Absolutely. But I think then the next, I suppose, jump on from that is the not being afraid to change what you're doing and not being afraid to iterate just because you have gone down a route does not mean that you are then precluded from another route. Thinking kind of more recently around, you say, business model ways, like time.com had no paywall for a long time. Then there was a paywall and it's had a paywall for 10 years or so. And now that paywall has come back down as they try to give more exposure to the content or whatever, give more space for ads. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's an important thing too, if like people get stuck in, like, this is how we monetize and this is the model rather than mm -hmm. the ability to change and move and migrate. So not getting tied to the platform either, like YouTube, for mm -hmm. example. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it does make sense. So why do you think people are resistant to change? Why do you think if, if I don't have a paywall and I add one, 10 years later, I've got a paywall. And now I'm thinking, gosh, I want to take the paywall away. What do you think is the thing that stops people from doing that at time that are working on this? I think 
that there are a lot of people with entrenched interests that, I mean, I don't know what tenure of someone at time is to be like, who decided that goes up. So they don't want to like admit that they were wrong necessarily at the time, but you know, I don't know. I think they could be like, right, well, actually we tried this. Let's try something else and see if it sticks. Like, I'm not saying it's bad they took it down. Mm-hmm. I think it's like interesting. That oh, they they, they're down. one of our customers, like, right? So yeah. Mark, Mark Benioff, who's created Salesforce, is one of my parent company's biggest investors. Oh, right. And we power, we, and the Salesforce website runs on our platform. But also Time. He went and yeah. bought Time personally because he has a lot of money and he cares about the brand. So he bought them. And I've only been here a year and a half. And in that time, 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 time they went from one CEO to another. So there's, the, the, there's not a lot of sort of tenure for the employees that are there, right? So that, that does factor into it, right? Somebody comes in, they've only been there a year or two, and everybody who comes in wants to flip the switches, right? Yeah. We, have a, we have a decentralized sales team. Wait, that's a terrible idea. Let's centralize it all. And they yeah. just flip switches. The next person comes in and decentralizes it. That must be the problem. But anyway, when you're, when you're doing that, the hesitation for something like that is the sort of fear of embarrassment. We, mm-hmm. we, we made a promise to the world that our content is so important that it's worth paying for and now we have to go out and tell the world, hey, we changed our mind. And people get into this, they just get stuck in fear, right? And they're worried about what people are going to think, what people are going to say, that promise that they made, and they're going back on it. And the, the dumb thing is, people don't, people don't remember any of this. Who cares? Like, I, how, much, how much brain power or time do I have in my life to think about what Time Magazine did or didn't do for a payroll? Like, nobody cares. Media journalists care. But my God, if you work in media, don't read media journalists because it's just a very, it's a little echo chamber it's, and it's going to drive you nuts. So you can, you can make lots of changes when, if you're a medium.com and you're on your seventh or eighth business model. Okay. People remember that you, you're like a roller coaster. You keep changing things. Maybe it feels like you don't know what you're doing, but if you're, if you're time, like you, you, you still have the room to experiment. And if you can defend why you're making a change, then you're good. But people aren't going to remember two weeks later two years later, like, just do it. Also, people will hesitate because they think, well, I can't try this other thing because I just don't have enough people or enough resources or enough whatever. If it's important, try it. You don't have to, back to the minimum viable product, right? You don't have to do a $2 million project to do that. Do a two-week project to do that or a two-month project to do that. Any, any good business should be built to be making experiments all the time. And if you're built to make experiments all the time to go ship and it, we, we have a phrase or a phrase I learned from my Parsley team. So Parsley is the content analytics company. They're, they're about a third of my product team is Parsley and the other two thirds runs that WordPress platform, the enterprise WordPress platform. They have a phrase ship to learn. So like we can work on something for two years. It doesn't matter. But if we don't get it out the door and get feedback on it, we really haven't done anything. So you don't, you don't go learn things so you can ship, you ship to learn, get it in front of products, get yeah, in front of, get your product in front of customers get feedback on it, ship to learn. And a lot of people just just get in their own heads about this perfect thing they have or they've got to wait too long. And I'm, I say this because I've been guilty of this for years and years and years and decades, right? Like I'm that person who will over plan, sketch, think, worry, whatever. But the times I've been successful are the times I just got something out the door. Yeah, done is the, was it good as the enemy of done or something? Or perfect, kind of yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, per- perfect is the enemy of, of something good or yeah. anyway we'll, we'll look yeah. it up we'll google it we'll, we'll find it we'll put it in show notes but that's so interesting because then that comes back to kind of the core like fundamentals of kind of startup culture and how startups approach this kind of work a certain amount of agility here of like cool have an idea build a thing ship it did that work did that not work iterate 
And in some cases, it doesn't have to be technology. That can be like, here's an idea for a piece of content. If we make a really big, long piece doing some expose kind of stuff, like like dabble in some investigative journalism, when traditionally you've been more of like gossip blog, say, like, is that going to resonate with your audience? But the only way to find out is to kind of do it, see how that worked out, and then decide again to try and, if you want to try that on, is that kind of where, where you're coming at with this? So, so, so no, it wasn't exactly what I was thinking, but your, sure. your, your answer is better. Your, you know, your answer is better than mine, which is if you just, if you think about the content part, right, you're creating yeah. content, you're, you're putting that out there. So forget about the business, forget yeah. about the brand, forget about the logo and the colors and all this stuff. People, people do that. I'm a very slow blogger. It takes me a long time to come up with a headline. Like I stress and obsess about all these things and what I write. And the company I'm at has a big writing culture. We, we actually don't use email. We have an internal blogging platform. And so you, instead of having things in email where if, if I leave this company 10 years later, you can't find the things that I wrote, right? They're kind of gone. We do these things on a blogging platform. So you can search anything. So when I joined, I actually got to go use their search for their internal blogging platform and see all the times that I was mentioned or companies or products that I built were mentioned. So I, it was a really wow. weird thing finding all these times when very specific people said a whole lot of stuff about me. Oh, Brian's changing his business. We should swoop in and steal his customers. Like all these really interesting things that a business would say, and they got to be able to go back in time and see that. So we have a big writing culture sure. and I'm a terrible writer, yeah. but I'm a person who builds platforms for writers. And as someone like that, you can also get in your own head that like, okay, so I'm going to write the best thing. But first I have to build the right CMS because it's the authoring interface. And then, ah, wait, wait, there's this new database that came out. Ooh, there's this new way to use JavaScript. And there's this thing that you can do. Ah, this framework's not that good. I'm going to pick another framework. And now you've just spent months trying to build the software so that you can then write the story. Instead of just writing the story, make a notepad, write it on paper, go to Google Docs, whatever word, I don't care. Like just go write. And people will spend a lot of time not doing that. I am a terrible writer. I obsess over those things. I can't just write. It doesn't come easily to me. So it's funny that I work in media and publishing, but I'm usually building tools to help people get 20 stories a day out yeah. or 200 stories or 2000 stories a day out. And that, and that, that's a good place for me because yeah. if I had to actually write any of those stories, you'd get one a month from me, which is yeah. terrible. I'd be, I'd be starving if I had to write for a living. And it, but it's the same deal. You just get it. Yeah. You have to get it out the door, get it to people. And then here's the funny thing. If you do something dumb or you say like, I'm, I'm going to be reviewing horror movies. And then later on you change and you say, okay, I'm no longer doing that. I'm, I'm, review, I'm reviewing all kinds of movies because I want to have a bigger business. Your early audience is always going to say, ah, oh, why did you abandon horror movies? That's the only reason I like you. Yes, but I had, I had three, I had an audience of three people. I want an audience of 3 million or 300 million people. So you worry about what that original core audience and not realizing it's, you're still at zero. You haven't left zero yet. You can experiment for years and years and years to get to something good. And people get hung up on those first hundred subscribers or whatever, like hundred subscribers is nothing. Thousand subscribers is nothing. A million subscribers on YouTube is nothing. You can change, you can branch out, you can do something new. In fact, if you don't, you're going to fail. Absolutely. You have to keep changing and iterating to, to get where you want to be. But I think that also like, to me, that's an interesting question of like scale of these works. Like what is kind of, what is the ideal, the ideal scale of these things? Cause I feel like I'm personally more attracted to like niche publications and I'm like, oh, they cover this one thing like really well. So your horror movie example of like, yeah, cool. I want to like know what these people like work at and like what they think. And I resonate perhaps more with their view. And there'll be another, like say a video game site where I'm like, yeah, I 
resonate with like this small group of people. But obviously those aren't like huge businesses, but they get enough traffic to do what they want to do. Whereas you then have these groups that go broader and broader and broader to the point where they lose their voice and they lose as much of the reason anyone was paying attention to them other than they have a brand that represents. And I don't know where where the right slot in that is. Now, obviously that'll vary per person and per company, but are we letting, are these brands getting too big? Like there is there too many moving moving parts, too much overhead between the product, the content and the readers or I don't know where I'm going with that. It's just that interesting. No, no, no. I, no, I, I get your question. I get your question. So, so your question is actually about scale, right? So yeah, well. <laughs> good, great, great name for a podcast, right? So it's about scale. And there's a very, there's a derogatory term in startups in, in Silicon Valley, right? Mm-hmm. My, my sport, which is a lifestyle business. So yeah. you, there are two kinds of businesses you can have. You can have one. And so, so when, when, when Jason and I set out to make that blog network back in 2003, 2003 we were, we were not thinking of it as, like a lottery ticket, we're going to buy mansions or whatever, like this thing we were thinking of, we literally sat down at a New York Knicks basketball game. And we, we talked about 20 different ideas we could do. And then we thought about this one. We said, it sounds a little bit like about.com back, back then it was called the mining company, or maybe they were already about the They'd just been bought by the New York times for like $400 million. And we were like, Oh, what if we could build a network of websites each run by, which is now like what Reddit has, or now what all of these other things have. But back in the day, it was, there'll be one, one on dogs. There'll be one on one topic on HTML. There'll be one topic on cars, whatever it is. And so he and I sat there and calculated what would it take for the two of us to be able to make, I don't know, $200,000 a year. Like that would be rich. If we could make $200,000 a year, we'd be fantastic. So what would it take to put together? And we thought it would be like 200 sites. And it turned out the answer was like 35. It's trying to find that line. It comes down to that lifestyle business problem of like, oh, do you want to have a as a publisher, like have a small focused lifestyle business mm-hmm. effectively where, okay. you know, your audience is dedicated. They like they resonate really strongly right. with you and your like small editorial team's point of view versus the huge brands out there that seem to struggle and seem to feel a lot more mm-hmm. frequently okay. because we're so it goes back to the investor thing. Yeah. Right. So, so when we were doing that, we were actually planning out a lifestyle business, right? Yeah. If we had talked to investors, they would have said, Oh, this is cute, but I'm not interested because this is a good lifestyle business. The two founders will make some money and your people will be happy. You'll be blogging, you'll be writing about horror movies or whatever the thing is we're talking about, right? But it's never going to be big. It's not worth it to me because investors have investors themselves, limited partners who put in a bunch of money. So much wealthier companies or uh, much wealthier people or wealthier companies who give them money to go invest. And they have to, so they don't think you're going hundred X or thousand X your business that they don't care if you're going to three X, that may be great for you as a founder to make a couple million bucks or tens of millions of dollars, but it doesn't move the needle for them on that. So you're a lifestyle business. So that's the derogatory term. And we set out to make a lifestyle business. And I would say we succeeded in that. We maybe went a little bit further than that, but we didn't make something that big investors were, would have been thrilled with. And that's when you talk about BuzzFeed and Vice and all these companies, they are, they could have been something interesting, but when you take on all that funding, you know, the one company that's done it the best is Vox. So Jim Bankoff with Vox and Polygon and SB Nation and The Verge and all those things. He worked at AOL when we were there. He was actually one of the people who bought our company. And he looked at our model and he said, oh, this is really cool. You can launch new sites on new topics in a weekend, Mm -hmm. put a small team together and go conquer and, 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 and steal ad money away from bigger companies. This is great. Let's do that. And he went off and did it, but he did it in such a big way and he raised a lot of money. 
but he's been able to navigate that and keep going and have a sustainable business. It's really hard. So, so if you look at the two kinds of businesses, the lifestyle ones that never, and, and, and it really does come down to, do you take outside funding? Because once you take outside funding, you've made a, a commitment to the people who gave you the money that you're going to give them back 10 times that money or double or something that at some point you're going to sell your business. So lifestyle businesses are ones where you don't sell them. You'll work on a thing for 40 years and, and it's, it feels like a hobby, but maybe it makes money. Maybe it's fun. Some events you do or something. But the once you take investor money, whether you're a startup or a media company, you've now agreed that at some point you're going to sell your business, no matter how much you love it, no matter how much you don't have another idea in you, and you're going to regret selling your business because it's the only you know, only good idea you ever had. It's the only space you care about, right? If you sell your horror movie website, you really love horror movies. You still want to write about horror movies. Now you want to start a second horror movie website and compete with the one you made. That's That's a terrible way to live. So- those businesses that are the lifestyle ones versus the ones that have this pressure to scale in the scaling group, you only hear about the successes really when you hear about the failures too. But you, the reason you think that that's a good way to go is because, oh, so-and-so built this thing and then they sold it and they got a mansion or they got a boat or whatever. I don't know. Or they got to put their kids through college. That's neat, but that's not the norm. That's like one, two, three percent if you're lucky. So you look at the BuzzFeeds and the Vices and all these, there's a bunch of other ones all from that era that are struggling, they took on a lot of money. They have a lot of pressure. They were really good at doing a thing for that year or that that window of three to five years. But now it's 10, 15, 20 years later, and there's a lot of pressure on them. And investors don't investors don't like something that goes on for that long. Their each of their funds has a 10 year window. After 10 years, like I I, I had a conversation with an investor one time where mm-hmm. we we were the last thing, last thing they invested in from their first fund. And it had been a bunch of years and they, and they sat and they, it sat me down and they're like, look, a couple of the companies from that fund have gotten really big and exited and gave us our money, made us a lot of money. All the rest of those companies, except you had the decency to go out of business. I was like, what? You're upset that I'm like making money. No, I, I had a lifestyle business. We were making a couple million bucks a year with a big team. We were growing, but we weren't doing what they wanted. And they either want you to get really big quickly or just shut it down. So they don't have to think about you anymore. Like, yeah. that's very hurtful to tell you yeah. that I hate your business that I've invested in. I'd like you to shut it down because it bugs me to have to think about you. Yeah. That's a, like, I, I like my business. I'm making money. I'm having funds. Yeah. So there's a really, there's a big wall. And that wall is, did I take investment money or not? And that dictates how you're going to do. And it's very hard to scale something and be at that 1% of the ones that are scaling and exit and make the investors happy. And then once you do, you sold your favorite thing you ever built. And now you're miserable. So that's, Absolutely. that's a terrible thing. So anyway, it's good to have a lifestyle business. It's great if you can do that. Right. But everybody who does that is like, they want to go to the next level. Now I want to get a, a TV show. Now I want to get onto such and such. Now I want a serious XM show. You always have that. Ne- now I want to publish a book about horror movies, right? You always have that next thing you want to do. As long as it fits in, that's great. But some of those things that you, you kind of, you know, rush to go do yeah. aren't healthy for you. Absolutely. First off, let's gross to that investor said that to you i'd be very upset if someone said that to me so i'm sorry you i was i was really upset that. in the moment yeah. but two weeks later i was like i'm the biggest investor in this business he doesn't like this there must be a reason yeah. and we ended up pivoting and doing something really cool but it was very hurtful that yeah. day and it kind of broke my brain like yeah he was really upset that we were making whatever six million bucks a year yeah. and on a small team but we weren't doing what he wanted us to do it's yeah. funny he- so just for those kind of like groups that are interested in kind of like getting up and getting started to recap, I suppose, is that 
kind of approach this kind of as the startup model, get something launched rather than sitting on it forever and ever, and you're already ahead of 95, 90% of people that are there. Try things, see what sticks, try different kinds of content, try different kinds of business models. Learn to kill your darlings just because you had a paywall doesn't mean you need to have it going forward. And just because you didn't have a paywall doesn't mean there shouldn't be one in the future. Seems like donation or any other model. And finally, be kind of clear on what it is you want as you go. You know, Do you want to have a lifestyle business that's fun and interesting and engaging for you personally? Or is it something that you want to scale and take, take on to, to everything else and grow beyond your kind of small teams? Is that about kind of sum up? No, it, it's a great list. If you list that out in bullet points and you hand it to somebody who's sitting in a coffee shop, thinking about the thing that they want to build, they will read that list and go, yeah, that's a good list. That makes sense. And they will yeah. still not ever ship anything because yeah. once you ship it, it's no longer the perfect thing in your head. That Rick Rubin book, he talks about the demo that you make for a song versus the actual song you make. And he says, demos are, they're actually really bad for you because when you listen to it, you're like, it's gotta be like this and your drummer's not doing it right. And the bass part doesn't sound right. And I have this, this, I have this thing in my head for the strings and like nobody can quite get that, that, that version that's in your head, the perfect demo version in your head out into the real world. It's very hard yeah. to do. And one of the ways to do it is like, get rid of this, hide the demo. Don't listen to it again. Just go, just yeah. go make the thing you're going to make. So you can give that's that cool. list you just made to somebody in a coffee shop and they'll nod their head and they still won't ship and they'll never learn and they'll stay at zero. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a hard thing. There's a, a something I was just reading about. It's like the five second rule where you like, you, you just like, when you have to do something really hard that you don't want to do, you just like count down from like five, four, three, and like going off a diving board. And you just do it. You just take the steps and yeah. go. And so this five second rule thing is really interesting. That don't, you don't need to read the book because it's literally in the title. It's the five second yeah. rule. But you you just get you just got to do it. You've got to start. And you can hand that list you just made to somebody in the coffee shop, and they will still sit there. And a month later, they haven't shipped. And yeah. that's the ninety nine percent. There's a really interesting like correlated that with podcasts, where like everyone has an idea for a podcast. If you get the first one out, you're already like ahead of yes. 50% of people yes. have ever had Instead a of waiting on the perfect theme song or the right software, right? Like again, yeah. you can wait a long time to start something. And if you, if you get to like three episodes, you have shipped more episodes than 95% of the podcast listed in the iTunes directory. And if you make it to 10, you're in like the top 99.5. Something weird like that's just yeah. trying to build yeah. that momentum. But awesome. And then my and, one and you're still at zero. You're still a nobody. And you can still, still experiment. But right? you're trying. You're absolutely trying. Everybody. So, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know you've got lots to do. If somebody wants to find out more about you, kind of what you've been up to, WordPress VIP, where, where can they go? Where can they look? Yeah, Word, WordPress VIP. I think it's WPVIP.com, but BrianAlvey.com. I blog there twice a year. Yeah, so, so Brian Alvey. That, that's easy. On Twitter, all the other places, but Twitter and LinkedIn. Those are probably awesome. a good one. But brianalvey.com. Yeah, brianalvey.com. Awesome. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have, please be sure to, and you're not already subscribed, please be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts and share it with a friend if you think there's something here that uh, would be useful for them. And we will speak to you shortly in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much.